You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. Uh, if you're an NFL football fan, you probably know that the New England Patriots have a bit of a reputation for cheating. Uh, if you're a New England Patriots fan, we're really, really glad you're here this morning because you need the gospel today. And we, we, we love you. Uh, so I guess, you know, the Patriots need a little help with that because but they, their organization had some preachers, you know, periodically come preach to the team. And two years ago, for some reason, they asked me to preach chapel at the New England Patriots. And the whole experience was surreal. I uh, had to go to a hotel in College Park, Maryland, because they were playing the Washington football team, and the Patriots crushed them. Uh, Anyway, uh, and there was probably 200 people in the first floor of this hotel just hoping to get a glimpse of the players as they go up and down the escalator. And this admin assistant comes down, grabs me, takes me to a VIP area. The first thing I see is Tom Brady. And I whispered a prophetic word, hey, Tampa Bay, bro. That's where you should go. (laughs) And uh, that worked out really well. Uh, Tom did not come to the chapel. Uh, I guess he was intimidated by my good looks. I don't know. Uh, But it was awesome to be there preaching to the Patriots because it was crazy. These are like world famous athletes making millions of dollars. You know many of their names. And they're calling me sir. Yes, sir. Muscular guys, like respected me, and there's these famous athletes asking me for life advice on parenting, on decisions they have to make, and there's even one guy who was on the roster bubble, about to be cut, and he was just thinking about his life and his his wife and kids, and he was just asking me advice. And at the end of the message, one of the coaches asked for my number and wanted to listen to more of my sermons, and we are still friends now. We keep in touch. And they paid me for speaking, and then they gave me tickets to the, the Washington football team game. And I just remember thinking, man, I feel so honored right now. Like, these people have no reason to be so nice to me and honoring to me. And they, they've been so kind. And Paul, in this text, affirms that that is how we should make pastors feel. We should honor them. But what's interesting about First Timothy chapter 5 is he actually spends more time on widows than he does pastors. He says, yeah, yeah, honor pastors, but also honor widows. I mean, he talks about widows for half a chapter. I mean, this is a letter, six chapters, all about what the church should be, and we got half a chapter on widows. And these were, the widows were the lowest, most useless group of people in a first century Roman world. They were neglected. And the reason there's so much time on widows here is because pastors and leaders do matter to God. How the pastor goes is often how the church goes. But God also cares about those who have been forsaken by everyone else. And so our action steps today as we go through this text, there's two points, two things that I would encourage you to do from the scriptures is to give your life to honor widows and also honor your pastors. Real easy, right? Let's see what that looks like. Number one, Paul says, honor widows. Now, if you've been to RCC for a while, you know we talk a lot about orphans and orphan care. And typically in the Bible, orphans, widows, and the refugee are the running buddies of the Old Testament. You always find these three groups together. And they're running buddies because each of these groups were very vulnerable in the first century world. Uh, Orphans obviously are vulnerable because they have no dads. Uh, you know, actually, I, I saw this news story last week of this high school in Shreveport, Louisiana, that had 23 arrests in the recent months because these kids kept fighting each other. And police, campus officials, security guards could not stop the violence. But then they found an answer. It was 15 black men, 15 black dads, who just went to the school and showed up and loved on these kids. And the violence suddenly stopped. There was no more fights. It said, the news report says that the dads in the hallways were making dad jokes. Hey, your shoe's untied. Ah, gotcha. That stopped the violence. 
That just shows us just the presence of a father can change the culture of a school, not just a, a kid. So obviously not having a father is a huge disadvantage, but also widows. I mean, just imagine a world in the first century with no pensions, no retirement, no nursing homes, no social security, and imagine you have no family and no income. And many times these orphans, especially these widows, were left in desperate situations. And so God's people were called to take care of them. They were to include the widows and the orphans and the refugee in the worship assembly. They were to leave extra food out in their fields so that these people groups could come and grab the extra and have something to eat. God had a solution for the widow-orphan problem in the world, and the solution has always been his people. It's always been the solution. And it makes sense that in a letter about what the church is called to be, he would continue his concern for the widow. You know, in fact, God gives himself a title in Psalm 68.5. He calls himself the father of the fatherless and the protector of the widow. What a great title, huh? If God handed you his business card, he'd say, I'm father of the fatherless and I'm the protector of the widow. And it's the title he deserves. I mean, we have a number of famous widows in the scriptures. Ruth and Naomi in the Old Testament. The widow of Nain in the Gospel of Luke, who lost her son. Her son died. Jesus raises her son from the dead. And everyone said, God has visited us. There's the praying persistent widow that Jesus highlights. And the widow who gave the one might as a model of generosity to other Christians. So throughout the scriptures, we see widows are not just cared for, but honored. And looked to as our examples. And First Timothy, Paul reflects that truth. Now, also, I think this is encouraging, the fact that we have, we have this understanding that the Ephesian church struggled to care for widows. There was obviously a problem of a lot of widows and not a lot of resources. And this was actually a problem in the early church in Acts as well. So we see two early churches that struggled with social justice. And let that be a comfort to you today, that even the best churches are not going to solve this problem. We need to have a lot of grace on these issues. We should be fighting to fix them. But we also should have some peace because Jesus says the poor will always be with us. And so we don't need to walk around in shame and in guilt towards ourselves or towards others on how we care for the neglected. We can live in peace but also give our best efforts to care for them. In 1 Timothy, Paul says to enjoy God's creation. So you don't need to like sell your iPhone if you care for widows. You can, but you don't need to. If you go on vacation, it doesn't mean you hate orphans. So we need to lose that judgmental spirit on how we treat people about social justice, but we also need to be giving great uh, amount of ourselves and our resources to care for these people groups. And these are the instructions Paul gives on how we care for widows. He says three things. Determine responsibility, filter the candidates, and enlist them for service. Let's go to number one. Determine responsibility. Who is supposed to take care of widows? Notice in the text, verse three, he says, honor, which in the Greek means take care of, Widows that are truly widows. Verse 4, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So the first layer of responsibility, the primary protection for widows, is the family itself. Does the widow have family members? Well, the Greek should actually be translated, they should pay them back. I like that. That when you get older, your parents are now old, it's payback time. They changed your diapers, now you've got to change theirs. <laughs> I don't know why you amen that, but <laughs> your parents got a diaper problem. Anyway, uh, I think about my mom. She worked in a hardware store for seven years. This is an old white woman working in a hardware store. While she was getting a bachelor's degree, while she was raising me by herself, we were on food stamps, we were on welfare, and yet she worked so hard for us. She bought Christmas presents, she paid for me to be able to play football, she helped me get through school, and now it's my responsibility that she's in her 60s is to take care of her now, to make sure her, her needs are met. And that responsibility is on you as well, young people, for your parents. Now, he says some widows, unfortunately, do not have family members, so that's where the church is supposed to step in. The second layer of protection for widows underneath the family is the church. But he says in verses 5 through 8, filter the candidates. He says, verse 5, if there's a widow who's all alone, she has no family, she has pleased God, she's a prayer warrior, then the church should make sure she's financially taken care of. Now, by saying that, he's saying there are some widows you should not support. Filter the candidates. He says, if she is self-indulgent, she is dead even while she lives. What a phrase, huh? 
So if this widow is 60 years old and she's a Mardi Gras catching beads, probably shouldn't support her. She needs a shirt, not a paycheck. We're not going to give a self-indulgent older widow coins to take to the casino. We're not going to support self-indulgence, Paul says. So if this older woman wants to live it up, Paul says she needs to realize she's actually dead even though she's still alive. And that's a word to you. If you're here today and you are not connected to a local church and you are living in rebellion from God, you want to live it up. Paul says you are dead even though you're breathing. Because you don't have that which is actually life, Christ. You're just a slave to what your body tells you it wants. And it leads you to the pit. So he says, command these things, teach these things. And one, of the thing you ought to know, one thing you ought to notice here is that mercy ministry should always be accompanied with a sense of responsibility from the one who is receiving help. The church is not to indiscriminately just give money away to anyone who asks. The church's resources are too limited, and that prevents the people who actually need help from getting it. Paul says, essentially, do not help every widow here. In fact, he's basically saying, don't help most widows. Help the poor widows in the church who have no family, who are faithful to God and faithful to that local church. And you might look at that and say, well, no, Jesus said, give to anyone who asks of you in the Beatitudes. That's not much like Jesus. Well, he, Jesus was using a hyperbolic literary device. He's essentially saying, give, live a life of generosity, abundant generosity. Jesus himself did not say yes to everyone who asked. Jesus, the crowds need you. No. Jesus, I want to follow you. No. Jesus, give us more of your special bread and drink. No. And why did Jesus say no? Because he embraced his limitations and he was strategic with his yeses because he knew every yes meant a no to something else. This is why Peter in Acts, when a beggar asked him for money, he says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I will give to you. I, I, I believe that Peter had no actual cash on him, but I find it hard to believe that Peter couldn't find some coins somewhere. But that was not his primary mission. It was to preach the gospel. And Paul here says no to just giving money to any widow that asks, that does not meet these qualifications. And how, how do we apply this here? Similarly in Baltimore City. You know, this city is so unique. Because you have million dollar homes next to homeless people and poverty and crime. And we have homeless folks coming into our building every day. And we are to treat folks who have nothing with dignity because they have the image of God in them. And they're worthy of respect simply because God has made them. So we love them. But we do not give to those who indiscriminately ask money of us. You probably have been asked for money a lot in Baltimore, haven't you? Random people on the street, squeegee boys, all kinds of people asking you for money. What do you do? Well, some legalistic Christians will tell you, you need to give money every time or else you're a bad person. But I would say, coming from this text, is that really the most loving thing you can do? When you think about the holistic aspect of your life and your limited resources, is it wise to give every time someone asks? And oftentimes, what that person needs who's asking, really what they need is not another $5. That often fuels an addiction. What they need is a friend. What they need is a community. You know, I, I, when I was moving to Baltimore City, there was a pastor who had been pastoring for 15 years in Baltimore that I wanted to learn from. And I, you know, Planning this church, I didn't want to come and think I have all the answers. I wanted to learn from everyone who had been doing it for a long time. And so one of the pastors that I talked to, I was asking him, what do you do about you know, poverty in the city? What do you do about homeless folks in the city? And he said, you know, actually, my dad was homeless for most of my life, is what he told me. And I told him, that's crazy, because my mom was homeless in Baltimore City for a season in her life, too. So we both had homeless parents in this city. And he told me that his dad would work in the winter months, quit his job, abandon his family, leave all his responsibilities, and choose to live on the street spring and summer months. Now, I'm not saying that's every case, but there are a lot of cases like that, where people are choosing not to work, choosing to indulge in a lifestyle, and by just giving money, you are fueling that decision. This guy told me, no one should ever give money to my dad. That's what he told me. 
And he also said this, I'll never forget this, he said, Baltimore City has more social welfare programs than any other city in America or in the world. If you want to get out of poverty, there is a pathway. There's food stamps, there's welfare, there's helping up mission, there's job programs. Will you go there is the question. And so what that pastor told me, and I think essentially the heart of what Paul is saying here is, we are to store up the church's funds to give to those who are in really desperate need within the church. Not to everyone and everywhere. Now, let me just say too, we do not buy the overly conservative notion that if you're poor, it's completely your fault. Just pick yourself up by your bootstraps and get out of poverty on your own. No, there are some people who are severely disadvantaged in our city and they need help. But we also don't buy the liberal notion that you are completely a victim of your circumstances. And if you just had money and education, you'd have it all together. No, we're sinners. There's a middle ground, and that's where the church is to be, where we can give someone a hand up who really needs it, but we do it strategically. And the scriptures say that if someone is not willing to work, Second Thessalonians says they should not eat. So we give to the poor, but we do so judiciously. And to be honest, if, I, if I'm being real about myself, and I would imagine it's the same for you too, a lot of times we give money to people we don't know on the street, is to silence the murmurs of our already guilty conscience. It doesn't really help that person get out of poverty or addiction. It just helps you feel better. You did your part. My hands are clean. Bye. Never see you again. And you do it because you want to feel better about yourself than you do about other Christians who don't give as much as you. You know what that's called? It's called legalism. You know, I think it's hilarious, like when a homeless person asks you for money and you're around other Christians, it can be panic-inducing, isn't it? Oh no, what do I do? If I gotta make sure I give the right amount so they know I'm generous. But the gospel frees you from having to prove yourself to the person next to you through your good deeds. See, the gospel says that you are righteous simply by the work of Christ and you hurt your own righteousness, but Christ filled in the gap for you. So you now need to do nothing but rest in His finished work. And now the principle that guides your life from that acceptance is love. And so you need to constantly be asking yourself, what is the most loving thing I can do right now? And so bring that filter into your life as you interact with the needy in our city. Paul here encourages the church, go to great lengths to care for the widow and the poor, but give wisely. Filter the candidates. And I would also say, just, just watch your motives. Don't give to virtue signal everyone else. Because what you're, you're dealing with is pride. And then he says, just at the end of the section, verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Dang, Paul, could you be a little harsher, please? So if we don't take care of our family, we are worse than an unbeliever. And what he's basically saying is that even unbelievers know to take care of their family. Because God has given us a conscience. He's given us a moral law within us. We understand that there are parental instincts in each of us, Christian or non-Christian, and each human being has this sense of responsibility to care for those who care for them. Now, how much more should the people of God, who have this specific revelation from the Bible, care for those who care for them? That's what he's saying. Care for your parents, even if they don't deserve it, even if you don't like them. We give back to them because we have a father who gave to us. Last thing he says about widows, enlist them for service. This is verses 9 to 16 is where it gets a little dicey, hard to understand. Translators are a little divided on this section. If you have a phone, you can go through the different translations and you'll see the, just the different ways to interpret this. The word enrolled here sometimes is translated as support list. Essentially, like put these widows on a financial support list if they meet these certain criteria. Others think enrolling them in a service list is more what Paul's getting at, like a role in the church. I tend to go with both, that these widows who were needy and abandoned by their families received financial help from the church, but they were given a job. They were to use their gifts to build the church up. And there's several reasons why we think it's both a financial support list and a role in the church. Let me just briefly mention two. Number one is the strictness of the qualifications of those in the list. Look at verse 9. They have to be 60 years of old age. They have to be the wife of one husband, reputation for good works, brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, cared for the afflicted, devoted herself to every good work. Those are some strict qualifications if you're just getting a check. And what I think Paul is saying is 
let these widows continue to do these good deeds to serve the church and financially provide for them as they do that because of meeting a need in the church. And then also we, we think this is a support list and a service in the church because the context, look at uh, verse 11. He tells uh, Timothy, refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Now, some take this as abandoning their former pledge. What seems to be going on here is that there were older widows who would commit to not being married and would devote their entire lives to serving the church after their husband died. And the church, in turn, would support them financially. And these widows would pledge to remain single. And Paul's saying to younger ladies, no, I don't want them to make this pledge of singleness because eventually they will abandon their pledge and it will incur condemnation on them. Not condemnation in the internal sense, but it's a sin to abandon your pledge. He's saying they will not be able to fulfill their commitment they've made to the church, and I would rather have these younger women marry, have children, manage their homes, because their passions will draw them away from their prior commitment. I know that's a lot. If I've confused you, let me just read Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this. I think it sums it up really well. He says, sign some widows up for the special ministry of offering assistance. They will in turn re receive support from the church. They must be over 60, married only once, and have a reputation for helping out with children, strangers, tired Christians, the hurt, and troubled. Don't put young widows on the list. No sooner will they get on that they'll want to get off. Obsessed with wanting to get a husband rather than serving Christ in this way. By breaking the word, they're liable to go from bad to worse, frittering away from their days on empty talk, gossip, and trivialities, knowing rather the young widows go ahead and get married in the first place, have children, manage their homes, and not give critics any foothold for finding fault. Some of them have already left and gone after Satan. Now, that's a long section. What does this have to do with us? Here are some application points. I only have eight. <laughs> But I think these are important. Number one, recognize the importance of women in the local church. He talks about women a lot in this section. And however we try and interpret this very difficult section, we must see from this and from the rest of the New Testament that women served a very important role in the local church. And they serve a very important role in our church. We don't believe this uh, theology that women are to be stamped on by the leadership of men and silenced. We believe women are co-heirs with Christ with us and should be sent out and equipped to use their gifts to build up the church. We see that here and we want to see that here. Number two, we need to care for widows. But we need to care for them in our context. In Paul's time, there were tons of poor widows. Our context is a little bit different, isn't it? A scholar Kent Hughes puts it this way. He says, today the application of this passage should be wider because modern American culture has produced a category of women virtually unknown in the first century. Christian women and children who have been abandoned by their spouses and left without family support. Godly single mothers are a new class of widow. And those without family and resources are the church's sacred responsibility. What's this mean? So we don't have a lot of older widows in our church. And I don't know many in Baltimore. Maybe you do. But I do know a lot of single moms. And we will have more and more single moms in our church as we continue to grow because of this pervasive problem in our culture of selfish, cowardly men who abandon their families as soon as it gets a little hard. And so one of the things we want to do to put the gospel on display is to show real honor and love and financial provision for single moms and any other vulnerable group like them. For you, this might be uh, taking an intro course to being a foster parent. Or it might be caring for the wife of a resident who's working 80 hours a week at Hopkins and this wife is home alone raising her kid by herself seemingly. She's a functional widow and she needs someone to care for her. It could be a college student who's away from their family for the first time and you inviting them into your home. We just care for vulnerable groups. That's essentially what he's saying. And this might not look glamorous. This passage is not the most scintillating passage in the Bible, but this is Christianity, isn't it? This is what Christianity looks like. And so I would ask you, do you even know a widow? Do you know an orphan? Do you know a single mom? Do you know any vulnerable person in need? Are you helping meet their needs? Caring for them demonstrates our great devotion to Jesus. So let's implement this in our context. Number three, let's also remember to care for our own family. I'm just going to move quickly here because I already said this. But if our Heavenly Father has cared for us, you should care for your family. Financially provide for them. Number four, 
The home is a place of spiritual warfare. Your home is a military outpost. You notice uh, verse 15, he says, For some younger widows have strayed after Satan. And you need to know, if, especially if you're a parent, Satan is attacking the sanctity and peace of your home. And why wouldn't he? The family unit is the most influential factor in a human being's life. And you might be like, no, no, no not my house. My house is Satan-free. I anointed oil in my house. Yeah, your house. Satan is attacking your home. Satan attacked me the other day. My dog peed on my bed. That was a demonic attack. <laughs> Satan is constantly trying to get my wife, Sherry, and I to turn on each other instead of enjoying one another. He's trying to get me to be frustrated with my kids instead of loving my kids. And just realize from this text, God is going after single moms. I mean, Satan is going after single moms. Satan is going after uh, families with mom and dad. Bringing up kids is spiritual war. And some have gone after Satan, he says. Number five, the Christian faith is ordinary. Just notice how non-sensational a lot of this is. Loving and supporting the elderly. Caring by extension for the orphan. That is what the church should be known for. Not great sermons. Not good music. Loving the orphan. Caring for the single mom. You know, recently I read a story of this 15-year-old kid named Davion in Florida. Davion was in foster care. And he went to the library to Google his mom's name. His mom had abandoned him. And Davion found on Google that his mom had a criminal record and had died three weeks earlier. After breaking down, crying in the library, Davion borrowed a black suit, a tie, some slacks, and went to a church. And at St. Mark's Missionary Baptist Church in Florida, Damian got on stage and asked if anyone would welcome him into their home. If they would adopt him, this 15-year-old. you imagine that picture? 15-year-old boy on stage saying, will someone take me? Here's his quote. He said this to the church, I'll take anyone, old or young, dad or mom, black, white, purple, I don't care. And I would be really appreciative. I had the best I could be. I am praying and still hoping. I know God hasn't given up and I'm not either. Eventually he would get adopted. He just graduated high school. And I love seeing a foster kid going to the church asking for a family. But what we need is the local church going into the foster system asking kids to join their family. Not the reverse. And friends, there are 1,700 Davions in the Baltimore City foster care system right now waiting for a mom who would drop them off at football practice or a dad who will give them a bear hug. Maybe you and I are the next dad or mom of another Davion in Baltimore. And that's not sensational. That's just normal Christianity. It's what they did in the first century and it's what we should do in the 21st century. We're just living the way God has called us to live. He is the father to the fatherless. He is the protector of the widow. And by extension, his people are the same. Number six, for a single person, don't be obsessed with marriage. There are a lot of single folks in this room. Can I encourage you? Do not be obsessed with marriage. If you're obsessed with marriage now and you get married, you still will not be happy. You will just resent your husband or wife. Your obsession must be Christ. If you're not content with Jesus as a single person, you will not be content with Jesus as a married person. He says in this text, these ladies are going to be obsessed with marriage. They're going to be, uh, not going to be able to serve in the way they could. So focus first on Christ. Number seven, single people, don't be idle. A lot of single people here, be intentional with your time now. Be diligent because idleness creates all sorts of sin problems. Last application point, number eight. Young married woman, focus first on your family. He says in verse 14, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. And so if you're a young mom in this room, be encouraged. You please God when you raise your kids, serve your home, and submit to your husband's leadership. And I've heard moms be asked before, what do you do for a living? And a stay-at-home mom will say, I, I just stay at home with the kids. 
You don't just stay home with the kids. You stay home with the kids. You're raising the next generation. You're doing what God says is good for you to do. And in doing so, you give the adversary no means to slander you. In fact, you protect the reputation of the church. What does that mean? Essentially, it means you give a living picture of the gospel, young mom. When you wake up at 2 a.m. drowsy to give your son a cup of water, you are giving a living picture of the gospel. When you are changing the diaper of poo running down the leg, you are giving a living picture of the gospel. And when the world sees you honoring your husband, serving your home, taking care of your kids, and you're content and joyful, they say something incredible must be happening in that person. You protect the reputation of the gospel and you give the adversary no room to slander. So we want to highlight the role you play, young mom. You protect the church's reputation. So that is how we honor widows. The second thing he says, honor pastors. I'm going to go really quickly over this section because it's kind of hard for me to preach about how you should honor me and how you should pay me. But I'm going to cover it as efficiently, quickly as possible. All right. He says three things about pastors. Compensation, accusation, ordination. Let's start with number one, compensation. He says, verse 17, let the elders who rule well or who lead well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So Paul says, honor widows and honor pastors, those who teach and shepherd the church. They are worthy of double honor. Which in the Greek really means double honorarium or double price. Double honor here likely doesn't mean double pay. It more so means double types of honor. So when you interact with a pastor, you should be thinking, how can I show him respect and make sure he's generously compensated for his work? That's what Paul is saying. And why are pastors worthy of respect and compensation? Because Paul says they're laboring. Preaching is labor. It's very tiring work. And it's often very thankless work. Preparing a sermon is hard. You know, we do something called RCC Institute where we take, we have like 17 students being trained and developed into church leadership at our church. And at the end of the second semester, I always have our students write a sermon and they always panic. And every single one of them always says to me, I had no idea how hard this is. They had a lot more grace for me because preparing a sermon is hard. People ask me all the time, how long does it take for you to write a sermon? I never know how to answer that question. Probably 20 hours a week. But it's constantly on your mind. Even on your days off, it's just running in your mind because you so badly want the people of God to understand the Word of God. You never really get a break. And I'm telling you, it's hard to write a like 40-minute talk to 200 people of all different demographics and life stages and belief systems from a book that's 2,000 years old, a message that will live on the Internet forever. That's a scary thought. Preparing a sermon is hard, and delivering a sermon is hard. My friend, who's a pastor, he was a pre-med major, became a pastor. He's done a lot of study on the, the role of ministry on a human being's life and body. He wears this device called a whoop, which a lot of professional athletes wear. It monitors your heart rate and your exertion levels. And he said, he runs marathons, and he said that preaching a sermon is the equivalent of running a 5K. Preaching two services or two sermons is the equivalent of running an 8K. I'm out here running marathons for you all. I love you. It's hard to prepare. It's hard to deliver. And the hardest part of preaching isn't the preparation or the delivery. It's the spiritual warfare. You ask any pastor that preaches, Saturdays are weird. You don't get a lot of sleep. That's the heaviest part. It's so deep, it's hard to explain sometimes. And so he's saying, pastors are laboring. Make sure you honor them. This is why in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So respect your pastors, respect your elders, which is another word for pastor, by the way, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And just, by the way, how do you apply this if you're not a member of a local church? Who's your pastor? You should be a part of a church. You should have a pastor and you should honor them. Why? He quotes Deuteronomy 25. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. The Old Testament people would take care of their animals. They would let the, the ox eat from the field as they work the field. So Paul is saying, if a pastor is working to serve you, make sure he's fed well. Then he quotes Jesus. And Jesus, when he sends out the 70 disciples, 
He says, don't take anything with you, but when you go to homes while you preach, let the people feed you that you're preaching to. That's why he says a laborer deserves his wages. And his point, Paul's here, is to pastors deserve compensation. Paul at times did work for free, but in 1 Corinthians 9, he says it is good for a pastor to be paid. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean I should be a multimillionaire. I should not be driving a Lamborghini. Tesla, iffy. I drive a Kia. Pretty standard. But they should not be overly abundantly rich, but they should be able to provide for the family and eat and not worry about money. A pastor has enough to worry about. Why make money another thing? And I just love this analogy that the pastor is an ox. He's not a rock star. He's an ox. You know, a lot of pastors are hairy. They work hard. Some have nose rings. They're an ox. And our, a really serious note here, our pastors, church, we need your prayer as we approach 2022, as we consider our upcoming budget for this next year. You know, our church has doubled in size every year we existed. We're three and a half years old. We've more than doubled every year. And every single person on our staff joined in faith, getting paid nothing, raising their own support, or getting paid half of what they're worth. It's just part of church planning. And so as we grow, we've needed to consider how do we apply this text and compensate the leaders among us. And so pray for us. We need wisdom. And we're having a family meeting, a member meeting on November 7th, if you're a family member of our church. And we're going to present our 2022 budget to you for your approval so that we can apply this text. And notice here, Paul says, the church should be financially providing for widows and financially providing for pastors. Question for you, how is the church supposed to get that money? It's members. And this is why we encourage everyone who calls RCC home to tie 10% of their pre-tax income to the church so that we can generously provide for orphans, widows, and our pastors. I'm not asking or saying that because I need your money. I'm saying that because you need to give your money for the sake of your own heart. Because if you hold tightly to your money, it will deaden your heart. And God, what he wants for you is abundance and life. And that often comes with living according to the scriptures. And so the first thing you should be doing with your money is saying 100% of it belongs to you. Now 10% automatically to your church. What do you want me to do with the rest of the 90%? And immediately, I know there's a lot of skepticism around church money. I get that. I don't like talking about this either because it feels a little self-serving. But I, I feel like we have to honor the text here. And I want to encourage you that our, our pastor's salaries have not been determined by me or anyone within our church. They were decided by an objective third party before we started the church. And my hope for RCC was always that we would be crazy transparent with our budget. That we would hide nothing from our members. And so if you want to know what my salary is, come up to me after the service. I will tell you what, exactly how much I make. I'll tell you how much our pastors make. Because we're not ashamed. We're not trying to hide. And we want you to have faith that we are stewarding what God has given us well. And I want to encourage you that 20% of every dollar you give is going outside of this church. It's going to adoption fund. If you want to adopt a kid, we have a fund ready to help you adopt this foster child or international child. We have counseling assistance money. We have benevolence fund money. And we use these funds. We've used them to buy cell phones for single moms, groceries for single moms, help single moms move. We've covered mem members' rent who are struggling financially. We've done some incredible things with money and given to some incredible organizations, social justice organizations around the city. And so when you give, when you tie to this church, you are giving to the city. You are giving to widows. You are giving to orphans. And I want to encourage you to do that. Now, the number one uh, pushback I get on this is we're a new covenant people. The old, the old covenant said tithe 10%. Now I'm not bounded by the new covenant to tithe 10%. And I would say that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous because when uh, Jesus talked to the Pharisees, he said to them, you guys tithe and that's good, but it's not enough. You neglect justice and you don't practice mercy. Jesus affirms tithing in the new covenant. And everyone in the Old Testament 
tied to the synagogue. And I don't know about you, but when I read the new covenant, it always seems to go way beyond the requirements of the old covenant. The old covenant said, do not murder. The new covenant, Jesus says, I don't want you to just murder. I don't want you to hate anyone in your heart. The old covenant said, don't lust after a woman. Jesus says, or don't commit adultery. Jesus says, I don't want you to even lust after a woman. The old covenant said, tie 10%. Jesus says, be generous. That has to be at least more than 10%. And so quite simply, you are not obeying 1 Timothy 5 if you're not tithing at least 10% to your local church. It doesn't need to be our church, but find a home and give 10%. And I would ask you, if every Christian did what you did with your money, if every Christian did not give 10%, what would happen to pastors? What would happen to widows? What would happen to orphans? What would happen to the local church? And so you could work at Taco Bell, you could work for NASA, 10%. And if you want to lead in our church, we make a requirement. You cannot lead God's people if you're not being an example to God's people. You need to give 10% at least. My family does it. We give more than 10% because I would never ask you to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. We would encourage you to do the same. And let me just say, your money often follows your heart. Your money follows your heart. Look at your bank account and I'll tell you what you love. And if you love Jesus, your money will follow. It will funnel to the local church. If you value the ministry of the word, if you value the widow, you will value giving to your church. Compensation. Now, then he moves to accusation. He says, second thing he says, after compensation, is be very cautious in accusing pastors of certain things. He says, verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Again, this is a quote straight out of Deuteronomy. Essentially what this means is don't be uh, surprised when you hear a charge against a pastoral authority or leadership. John Calvin said that none are more exposed to slanders and insults than godly teachers. They may perform their duties correctly and conscientiously, yet they never avoid a thousand criticisms. So take it easy on your pastor. Instead of a criticism, maybe give him a curse. Do that with your boss, too. And don't be quick to accept an accusation, Paul says. Be cautious. People have agendas. People have reasons. Now, I'm not saying pastors are faultless. In fact, Paul's going to say there, there are many pastors who aren't faultless and need to be rebuked in the sight of all. But be cautious about what charges you accept and let there be witnesses. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean if one of our pastors is accused of sexual impropriety, especially against a minor, we are required by law to report that to the police, and we will do so. But any charge that is not required by law to tell the police, we require two witnesses uh, to, because these pastors have earned our trust. So we're not just going to accept blindly the accusation of one. Verse 20 says, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. The church and the elders should stand in fear as a, sin, a pastor in public sin is rebuked publicly. And notice here, this is not every sin. We don't rebuke a pastor publicly for everything they do wrong, or else we'd be here all day talking about my life. In Galatians 2, Paul rebukes Peter for his public racism. He's like, Peter, you won't eat with the Gentiles. That's messed up. You're a racist. He says that publicly. It's in Scripture forever, so that sucks for Peter. But <laughs> my point is, public sin needs public rebuke. And because when a pastor falls, often so does the church. So we're aggressive in killing sin. Verse 21, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. You know, we live in a cult church culture where your gifting can, covering, can cover your sin. And Paul says here, I don't care if you can sing like Jason Derulo. If you're living like Jason Derulo, you're disqualified. Your gifting does not matter as much as your character. And we are in the presence of Christ Jesus, Paul says. So even the most talented leaders... We, give, we do not give partiality. I would say this to any pastor in our church, to myself. You should not give me favor uh, because of my role. You should judge me without partiality based on my actions. And that goes the case for any pastor. Last point, he says, ordination. He says, be very slow in appointing a pastor to be a pastor. Partly because you need multiple witnesses to accuse them. So if they're going to earn their trust, be slow to appoint pastors. Verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Be cautious, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Then he writes your grandma's least favorite verse. Verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine. 
For the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Somebody's got a new memory verse today. Drink some wine. The reason Paul is saying this is because Timothy probably had some legalistic tendencies. There was a lot of asceticism influencing the Ephesian church. A lot of these people were rejecting the good things God has made. And Paul's like, bro, wine is a good gift from God. Plus it helps your stomach. Drink some. So honor Jesus today by having some wine later tonight. Uh, if you're 21. <laughs> then he says, verse 24 and 25, this is the last point. There are four types of people that you need to think about as you appoint pastors. And this is helpful for you. If you're thinking about a potential business partner or a girlfriend or a potential spouse, these are categories you need to be aware of and implement as you make decisions on who you're going to align yourself with. He says, verse 24, telling Timothy as he thinks about pastoral uh, appointments, the sins of some people are conspicuous, meaning they're obvious going before them to judgment, those guys, you don't appoint them as an elder because their sins are blatant. It's out in front of everybody. Knock them off the list. The guy who streaked naked on the Raven Stadium last Sunday probably should not be a pastor or your business partner. That's one category. Then he says, but the sins of others appear later. That's group two. There are some in this church who are sinning invisibly. You have hidden things you are not sharing. And Paul is saying they will be revealed eventually. And this is a word of caution to us about moving too quickly in relationships. Human beings are frequently different than what they appear at first sight. This is the iceberg principle. You only see one-tenth of what's really going on. And Paul is saying time is your biggest friend because time eventually reveals what's hidden in each person. So go slow. Then he says, group three, verse 25. So also, good works are conspicuous. You know, there are some people in the church who are obviously doing a great job. They show up early, stay late, are serving and blessing the church. Hey, they might be a great pastor. Then fourth group, and even those that are not conspicuous or obvious, cannot be hidden. So if you're the guy, you feel like no one's noticing all the good things that you're doing. Maybe you're single and you're like, why is no awesome girl noticing me? Maybe you're serving in the church and you're like, why is no one appointing me to a leadership position? Paul is saying, just wait. Your good deeds will be revealed. And Paul is also telling Timothy here, there's some guys you might want to give a second look. And this is why Timothy must give himself time to form an accurate assessment of a pastor's character. Because attractive personalities often have hidden weaknesses. And unimpressive people often have hidden strengths. Timothy must learn to discern between the seen and the unseen, the surface and the depth, the appearance and the reality. And so we have four groups. Those who are obviously sinning. Secondly, hidden sins that will eventually be revealed. Third group, some natural leaders who are evident to everybody. And the fourth group, some good leaders who need time for the leadership and their gifting to be revealed. What group are you in? Are your good works observable? Would somebody say of you, I want my daughter to grow up to be like her. I want my son to grow up to be like him. Or are you in the second group? Are you hiding sin? This is a warning to you that it's better to confess it now because it will come and crash you later. It will come out. So it's better you say it now and get healed. Or are you the hidden type who's quiet in the background, group four, just being faithful where you are, just be encouraged, Jesus sees you. And it will be revealed on the last day, won't it? You know, it might be shocking who receives the most honor on the last day. The janitor might get more honor than the pastor. And so be faithful, that's what he's saying. The church is called to honor widows, the church is called to honor pastors. And what unites these two random, seemingly random groups of people? We honor them. We honor widows by providing for them and giving them the dignity of using their gifts to build up the church. And we honor pastors by paying them generously and respecting them. The whole text spills with honor. And so, family, let's be a people who honor one another like we talked about last week. We are not just an event or a service or a building. We are a people, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, honoring one another. We are a people who honor widows and vulnerable groups like orphans and the refugee. And we also honor our leadership, our pastors. And all this gets down to one final question. Do you honor King Jesus? The chances are, if you are honoring Jesus, you will honor these other groups of people. And the sad truth is that Jesus was one who did not receive honor. He shows up in his hometown in Mark 6 and it says they did not honor him. 
even though he is the personification of doing the commands in this text. He honors widows. On the cross, Jesus hung there, and what did he say? John, take care of my widowed mother. Jesus is about to breathe his last breath hanging there, and he's thinking about widows. And Jesus is the ultimate pastor. He is the chief shepherd. He deserves all honor, most, the most honor. All I do every week is just repeat his words to you. And so let's be a people who honor the king. Let's honor Jesus, who went to the cross in shame, hanging there, naked, dishonored, dying in our place for those who have dishonored God and dishonored other people. But he rose again three days later from the grave in all honor, in all power, in all glory, and he is coming back to make his glory known to us. And so until then, we bow our knee in honor to Jesus. When we see him, we will honor him, and now we are a people who honor his people on the earth. Let's give him the honor due his name. Let's honor widows. Let's honor pastors. Let's honor Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for being the model of this text for us, caring for those who can give nothing back to you and being the perfect shepherd in our place. You pastor us so well, God. Christ, you have saved us, you have endured us, and you will bring us home. We honor you, Christ. And may we bestow this same honor to the widows and the pastors in our lives. And may our church be a place of honoring one another because you have honored us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.